We're in this series on the wilderness where God shapes his people, and it's intentional that we're in this part of the Bible because there's a sense that we're all in a wilderness right now. The reality is we're always in a wilderness. Life on this broken planet is a wilderness journey while we are waiting to get into the promised land, which is where we will live most of our existence by a long shot. The vast majority of our lives will be lived not here. And so while we're wandering in the wilderness, we're learning lessons. What will God teach us? How will he shape us and form us in these wilderness years? And we've learned lesson after lesson. We've come now, starting last week and then this week and next week, these three weeks are some of the most historically important moments in the nation's history, the, the nation of Israel. It's a little bit like for in our U.S. history, maybe you got you know Plymouth Rock or... Um, uh, Gettysburg Address, or you've got 1776, the Declaration of Independence. And we can talk about these major moments in our history. These are major moments. So last week, Lloyd taught on the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, just that small little part of our Bible, you know, the Ten Commandments is so shaped and so formative and so important. This week and next week, we're going to talk about what happens right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, which is just as important, but in a terrible way in a tragic way, but in a very formative way for the nation. And, and honestly, if, if you will track with me down the rabbit hole of this text this morning, because we're, we're going to go deep into it and deep into our own hearts. I believe that down in this place is something critical to each of our relationship with God as we wrestle through the concept of idolatry and what it is then, what it is now, what it means for us. So hang with us as we walk through this text. Let me catch us up from last week to this week. It was a short period of time chronology, chronologically, but it's 12 chapters in the scripture. So last week, Exodus 20, 10 commandments. This week, Exodus 32, the golden calf. What happened in between chapter 20 and chapter 32? Well, chapters 21, 22, and 23 are giving of more laws. So you got the 10 commandments, then you have all the other laws. Remember that God was giving them a constitution, not just 10 commandments, but a complete set of, of civil laws and religious laws. Then you get to chapter 24, their covenant is confirmed with God through a wedding ceremony. We, they they didn't call it that and wouldn't think of it that way, but that's what a covenant is. God said, here's what I'll do. The people said, we will uphold our part. They joined together in covenant and they celebrated the union just like we celebrate wedding ceremonies with a party, with a meal. And so they went up on the mountain, um, Moses and 70 of the elders, and they had a meal in the presence of God. That's chapter 24. Then Moses continues up higher on the mountain. The 70 elders come down and it's just Moses up there and he disappears. He's gone for 40 days. And in that 40 days, you have chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, all the way through 31. And in all those chapters, God is giving him instructions about the tabernacle and about the worship and about the Ark of the Covenant and about the priests. It's all the religious parts of their covenant with God. It's very significant. And then we get to our text. And what, what happens down on the ground while Moses is up in, on the mountain for 40 days. And I want to actually start with the last verse of chapter 31 to give you some context. Then we'll launch into 32. So Exodus 31 verse 18 is where we're going to begin this morning. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. 
And I just want to start there just to kind of put that context. Written with the finger of God, tablets of stone. This is significant. This is a really big deal. This is unique in all of human history. And then look at the very next verse, 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They're assuming that Moses may be dead, that Moses is not coming back. How interesting is that their, their, their thirst for false gods, their thirst for you know, gods who will go before them is actually a replacement for Moses. It was Moses that they were looking to visibly. And it speaks to the condition of the human heart to always need to have something you can see and, and, and touch, you know, an, an object to lead you. It wasn't enough for them to be led by a God who was primarily invisible. They needed a, a physical manifestation. So as soon as Moses is presumed dead, they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, um, make gods for us. By the way, there's a hint in the Hebrew that this was an angry mob, that they were essentially forcing Aaron to do this when it says that people gathered themselves together. That, that's, you dig into the Hebrew and it's kind of this idea that they kind of came at him with force. And then the way they address him is up. I mean, they're commanding him up. Make us gods who shall go before us. That's not to excuse what Aaron does, but it gives you some context for the heart of the people. Let's continue in verses two. We'll cover two, three, and four in this next section. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Absolutely devastating. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to believe. Remember, they had just made the covenant 40 days before. Just made the covenant. You know, the best analogy I could think of is on the honeymoon, there is unfaithfulness. The promise was just made days ago, and now there's unfaithfulness. Now, this is, it's sad. It's, it's bewildering in many ways. I think by the end of the message, I hope that you'll, you'll be able to sort of see your own heart even in this. But at first, when you look at this, it's like, how and why? Especially when you see that last phrase, how could they attribute to a golden calf the power to rescue them from Egypt? They saw Moses melt the gold down, or Aaron rather, melt the gold down and form the calf with their own eyes. By the way, do you know where they got the gold? Egypt. God gave them the gold from the Egyptians. When, when they were coming out of Egypt, the, the plagues on Egypt were so severe that the Egyptian people were, were just so ready to get rid of the Hebrews that they said, you know, take all of our gold, take all of our things. It was sort of trying to appease Yahweh. And it was in that way that Israel stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Now, why did God provide that? He knew a new nation was going to need a treasury, was going to need resources. They're going to be wandering in the desert for 40 years, for crying out loud. They'll be going into a promised land and starting fresh. He, he, he gave them this wealth. They took the wealth that God gave them and they made it into this false God for them to bow down to. It's just unbelievably tragic. 
Now, I actually, I brought a, a golden calf with me <laughs> this morning, and it, it feels a little, very sacrilegious to place this right up here on this podium right next to the Bible, but it's an illustration, okay? Don't freak out. Um, if it makes you feel any better, it was really hard to find a golden calf on Amazon. This is the best that we could do. It, w- it doesn't even look anything like it would have really looked like. For one thing, it would have been significantly bigger. I- I'm kind of glad you can't find a golden calf just on Amazon. It's probably good. good. But um, it also would have been more like a bull. This, this, was like a, this is like a heifer. It would have been more like a bull. So, you know, in, in English, it's calf. But in Hebrew, the idea was like this young, strong bull. Now, why a bull? Why a calf? The bull in that time was a symbol of strength and fertility. Makes a lot of sense. It's an agrarian people. They needed to to procreate in their livestock, in their cattle, in order to have more food. They they needed to procreate themselves in order to have protection, in order to, you know, their descendants, et cetera. So fertility was a huge deal. Um, Strength and and, and livelihood is a big deal. So the calf, the the bull, was a common symbol. Unfortunately, it was also primarily associated with Baal. So a lot of scholars think that there was some Baal worship, there was some Baal influence already in this, um, this sort of syncretistic uh, approach that we're going to worship Yahweh, or we're going to worship this Baal God. You know, it's all kind of mixed together. And when they say, these are your gods, plural, did you catch that? These are your gods, O Israel, who led you out of the land of Egypt. Why gods instead of God? Well, Probably what's going on is they haven't stopped worshiping Yahweh in their heads. They're just adding the calf to the mix, you see. So they got the calf here. They see the mountain in the background. There's still storms and lightning and stuff. You know, Moses is gone. And so before they had Moses and Yahweh, in a sense, and they're probably their own minds. They were associating Moses as sort of a God because, you know, uh, he, he was doing miraculous things, which was a wrong way to think about Moses. But the reality is they now have this calf as a replacement for Moses. And then they still are trying to call on the name of Yahweh. So these are your gods. What a mess. What a mishmash of beliefs. It's exactly what God was trying to keep them from. Now, I want to keep going in the text, and you're going to see even more why I think there was this, um, this mix of Yahweh worship and idol worship. Take, take a look at what happens next, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, in other words, he, he saw them attributing to this calf the works of Yahweh. He built an altar before it. I mean, he built an altar to the calf, guys. You know, Aaron knows more than this. He's not off the hook, even if the angry mob. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh the proper name of the one true God. You see what Aaron's trying to do? He's sort of trying to pull Yahweh worship back into it, but he's combining it with this this Baal worship. And the result is polytheism, which is exactly what was true in Egypt that God took the people out of. What differentiates the Hebrew faith is monotheism. And it's already becoming polytheistic. And then look what happens in verse six. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. By the way, those are the same offerings that God commanded them to offer to him. And they're offering it on this altar before this calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The first two commandments were both broken right after 
they were committed to. Let me remind you what they are. The first commandment states, you shall have no other gods before me. Scratch that one off the list. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Scratch that one off the list. Why did God give them those two commands? What was the big deal? Part of the answer is is embedded at the end of verse six. Take a look at it again. It says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It sounds innocent enough in English. Now that, that's um, kind of a PG translation. The, the word play has connotations of immorality. And the way that the pagan people would worship is they would do all kinds of immoral things in front of their idols to in, induce the idols to sin rain or induce the idols to save or induce the idols into uh, some passion to act. God knows what happens when your worship becomes corrupted. He knows the devastation that it brings. And, and literally on their very first day of idol worship, they are destroying themselves. And so Exodus 32, guys, one of the most important and awful chapters of the entire Bible. This was the moment in Israel's history that, that they started to unravel. And it's so early in their covenant relationship with God. And, and so we're not gonna go on anymore in the text. Lloyd's gonna teach the rest of it next week. But you saw in the very good summary that, that they did on that video, what happens next is God's ready to start over with the new people. Can you blame him? Moses intercedes and rescues the people through a conversation with God, and that will be very interesting next week. But I want you to know that the slippery slope of idolatry began on this day and it never left the people until they were ultimately displaced and exiled from the land. The land that they're not even in yet, they're already sort of giving it up 40 years before they enter into it. More than anything else, guys, idol worship will will go on historically for this people to to be the one thing that over and over again pulls them away from the the life source, their, their, their connection to the God of the universe. It was the dominant sin that they would struggle with for 1,000 years. And ultimately, it's exactly what results in them being conquered and exiled and displaced and for all practical purposes, wiped off the face of the map for a long period of time. And so I want you to sort of think about it this way. Um, Turning from God to idols was a step down the path of self-destruction. So why is worship so important to God? Is it just because God is selfish and you know God wants all the worship for himself? Is it all about God? Oh, no, no, no. God loves his people enough to want his people to live according to what's true. 
And so here's how idol worship would work, okay? They would create an image and then they would say, okay, this, this bull represents fertility. So guess what? All the people that were, were trying to, to have children, they would come and make sacrifices before a God of fertility. Or they would create an image that, that's for a rain God and you're a farmer and you needed to rain in order to live. So you'd come and make sacrifices to the rain God. God knows those are delusions, God knows that praying to them and sacrificing to them won't get them anywhere, that only he himself is the source of life. So no so-called God has the power to respond to a human being's needs and desires. An idol is lifeless with nothing to give. In contrast, the God himself that they are leaving to go worship something else, that God, the true God, has everything to give everything to offer. He's the very source of life itself. And so here's kind of the big idea for, for this moment in history that, that turning away from God toward a lifeless idol wasn't just a religious issue for the Hebrew people. It was a self-inflicted disaster for them. And it led them down a path that, that inevitably went to three-step destruction. They became like other nations. That started right here. They were eventually overpowered by other nations and then they were finally scattered among the nations. And that's the process that happened over about 1,000 years because of idol worship. Um, I like what Carrie and Emily said in their video that God you know, called this people out of Egypt in order to be holy. Do you know what holy means? It doesn't mean religiously good. Holy means separate. Holy means set apart. Holy means distinct. And there's all this awful stuff happening with all these nations. They're, they're literally just engaging in things that, that not only are foolish, but are, but are robbing them of life. And God says, this nation, I want to be separate from that. I want it to be connected to the true life source. And they became like other nations. And so they were overpowered by other nations and eventually scattered among the nations. Now, that is ancient idolatry. Now, I want to talk about modern adultery. I kind of want to just get this thing off the podium as quick as I can. And, I, and I'm, going to, I'm going to unpack a modern idolatry for us. And the rest of this message, guys, is applying those six verses to our lives in, in a way that I think applies to every single one of us. And it's a really big deal. And so I'm going to teach it the best I can, but really just pray that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you through the text. Most of us assume idol worship's a relic of the ancient past. I haven't seen, as, as I've been in your homes um, and other places around town, I haven't seen a lot of idols, not the literal kind of idols. Although I was in one, an Asian restaurant a while back, and they literally had a little statue and they had food laid out for the statue. And I don't know if they really believe in that, if that's just show or what have you, but for the most part, I, that's the only place I've seen an idol around Middle Tennessee. Maybe uh, your experience is different, but... Here's, here's what's true. In a broader sense, idolatry is alive and well as much as it ever has. The only difference is the objects of worship. Modern people don't go to fer fertility idols and rain idols anymore. But to understand idolatry, you really have to understand worship. Because idolatry is worshiping something that's not true, worshiping something that's false, worshiping something that can't give you life. Okay, that's, that's in essence idolatry. I'll give you a, a better definition later. But let's understand what worship is. Um, the essence of worship is ascribing ultimate value to something. So worship in Old English is worth -ship. 
So it's saying that thing is worthy of my praise, worthy of my affection, worthy of my love, worthy. That, that's kind of that, that's that idea of worship. And it turns out we're very natural worshipers. Um, music we love, food we love, um, sports teams we love. We can worship technology and, and celebrities and sex and power and, and uh, politics. I mean, all these things, just to name a few, can become objects of our ultimate worship. Now, let, let me say this, because I don't want you to be confused. Enjoying these things in their proper context is not worship. Ascribing ultimate value and worth to them is worship. And the difference can actually be pretty subtle because it's in your heart. Two people can be doing the same thing outwardly with their choices. One is worshiping a false God. One is enjoying something to the praise and glory of the true God. And so I want to explore this idea that the difference between something you enjoy and something you worship has everything to do with what you believe that thing can offer you. Let me explain. If you believe something holds ultimate life for you, ultimate value for you, if you put all your hopes there, you put all your dreams there, you say, I've got to have this thing in order to be okay, in order to live, in order to thrive. Whatever that thing is, that can become an object of your worship because at the deepest level, every human being longs for the same thing, don't we? Fullness of life. That's what every human being longs for. And that was true in the ancient times with these people. And that's true for us today. Um, some call it happiness. Some call it meaning. You know, I just need to have meaning and significance in my life. Some call it no regrets. Live life with no regrets. That's, that's just some of our mantra. Um, maybe it's whatever your definition of success is. Um, Maybe for you, fullness of life means your family being well and healthy and worshiping God. I mean, that, that, these things get interesting. Your quest for fullness of life explains every decision you've ever made. By the way, God made you that way. You don't have to apologize for seeking fullness of life. You were designed to seek after life in all its fullness. He put that longing in you, knowing you would seek, knowing you would latch on to whatever you believe holds life for you. In other words, he made you to be a worshiper. He made you to grab onto things and say, that's good, that's great for me. I'm gonna lock myself in with that thing. He made us to be worshipers, but he did not make us worshipers without also giving us an ultimate object for our worship, which is himself. The only thing that is fully good and fully satisfying and fully right, the only thing that's worthy of worship, you hear us talk about that phrase, the only thing that's worthy of worship, this is what that means. Are you going to find life in this and that and the other? Not ultimately. Where will you find ultimate life? Only from the life source, creator, capital C, the breath of God himself, you see. Listen to how David expressed it. You know, David was a pretty good worshiper, wasn't he? He wrote many of our Psalms. God describes David as a man after his own heart. I'd say David was a pretty great worshiper. Listen to how David expressed it, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Now, if you take David sincerely here, which, which I do, I don't think he was just writing fancy words he didn't believe. This was flowing out of him, all right? This is poetry flowing out of this man. What he's essentially saying is, you, God, are life to me. Fullness of joy is with you in your presence. At your right hand, God, are pleasures. Do you see where David was seeking and finding fullness of life? This is why he had such a profound relationship with God because he found in God the ultimate object of his quest. The ultimate life source that God designed us for is himself. Now our problem is just like the Israelites in Exodus 32, we, we tend to turn away from God, the true life source, and, and worship all these other things because we think the things we can see and touch and feel are what we need most. That's the essence of idolatry. And just like for the nation of Israel, our idolatry grieves the heart of God because it robs us of life. That's why worship is such a big deal. And so from this foundation, we're, we're ready to, to write a definition of idolatry that can apply to both ancient times and modern times. So we'll put it on the screen and maybe not the perfect definition, but I think it gets us where we need to get to this morning. An idol is anything apart from your creator you look to for fullness of life. That's a very important definition. Let's unpack it for a minute. Whatever you believe holds the secret of life for you, the fullness of life. You know, it's like some, some of you are just like, man, if I could just get married and have a family, if I, if I could just have the, the career that I want, if I could achieve this level of success or this level of wealth, or if I could get to this age and look back and leave a legacy for my grandchildren, you know, whatever you believe holds fullness of life. You will chase that thing. You will build your life around that thing. To borrow a phrase from John Calvin, our hearts are idol-making factories. Why is that true? Because we crave life. God designed us that way. The problem is we, we go after things other than the creator, other than our true life source. So, you know, I, I mentioned before how ancient people viewed idols. Guys, it seems so foolish to us. Why would they pray to a God of stone or gold? That just seems ridiculous to our modern ears. And yet, we are just committed, just as committed to going to whatever source we think will give us what we most desire. We are. Whatever you believe can give you what you ultimately want, you will center your life around that person or thing you will make sacrifices to it or you will sacrifice yourself for it. In other words, you will find yourself worshiping it. Now, we've talked about what some of these, these things are. I'm gonna give you some more examples and, and modern day examples. Um, and I wanna do that through this illustration. You know, I had the, the golden calf uh, for the ancient people on the table a minute ago. I'm going to put some other gold things on the table. I think our idols are a little bit like trophies sometimes. I'm just going to use this as an illustration. I've got some trophies here. And we tend to collect trophies. We maybe not display them. Maybe you do. 
I won't tell you where all these came from. <laughs> now, each of these trophies kind of has a different significance, kind of has a, a different meaning. And, and so we, we collect these things over time. And, and I think the reason that trophies are meaningful, the reason that trophies are given and received and, and sometimes prominently displayed is because we're trying to convince people and starting with ourselves that we're okay. You know, that we have some ability, that, that we're not just a bum. You know, that there's something to us that's worthwhile. And, and, and you know, we'd say, look, here's my skill. Here's, here's my accomplishment. Here's my reputation, you see. I got this for being a good person. Um, I don't know what yours is, and probably most of ours don't literally correspond to a literal trophy, but, but it's like, he, he, here's my family. Do you see my kids? They're good, they're good folks. What does that mean about me as a parent? I'm a good parent. I've done my best. Do you, do you, do you see my, my name, my reputation? You see all these kinds of things. Now, what's interesting about these is they're all good things. Everything I just mentioned is a good thing. But a good thing made into an ultimate thing that's an idol. And I just want you to see how, how easy that this can be. And many, many of these things I just mentioned, these are gifts that God has given to you to be enjoyed in a way that would overflow into worship of the true God, the true giver of the gifts, you see. So whatever the ultimate thing is for you, maybe it's a, a trophy on your shelf or, or a trophy you wish you had that you don't, but someday you're, you're striving for it. You're, you're gonna get that level of success, that level of wealth, that level of peace, that level of contentment. I really like this quote from Barry Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones is one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary. This is what he wrote about idolatry. We'll put it on the screen. Idolatry is the elevation of something, someone, some pursuit, some practice to a higher place of loyalty and devotion in our heart than God. In our moments of sin, we say to God, I want this more than I want you. I need this more than I need you. I love this more than I love you. We craft idols. We attempt to satiate our thirst out of our own resources, but we're all still thirsty. Leave that on the screen for a minute. What I like about this is it speaks to this idea that, that behind every sin you sin is an idol in your heart because it's a choice to disobey God in order to grab something that you want more than you want God at that moment. So you're going to make a choice to lie, for example, because you think saving face or avoiding embarrassment is better than obeying God. You're going to choose to watch, go to a certain website or do something because having that craving fulfilled is more important to you at that moment than obeying God and, and clinging to what he says is right and true, you see. Here's the thing though, guys. But behind every idol, there's a lie. Now, what's the lie behind the idol? The, the lie behind every idol is that something other than God can satisfy you. The lie is that moving further and further away from God could ever lead you to more and more life. By the way, although the idols of the ancient people were, were nothings, you know, they, they, they were statues of gold and stone and wood, they're, they're, there was nothing to them in a sense. Scripture talks about real spiritual realities behind them spiritual darkness 
fallen angels, demons, Satan. There was something going on underneath the surface of these false gods besides just foolishness of the people. There was something spiritually dark that was grabbing onto the hearts of these men and women. Do you think it's any different for us today? Our idols ensnare us. They, they, they enslave us. They trap us. They bind us. They ultimately consume us because they demand to be placed first in our lives. And, and so an idol will capture your heart because it, it'll start to dominate your thoughts. It'll dominate your emotions and dominate your desires and then ultimately lead you to choices. So whatever things in your life that you can tend to turn into idols, whether it's a good thing or whether it's not a healthy thing, you, we can idolize either one of those. Um, those are things that you'll end up serving. You know, just like in ancient times the people would offer literal sacrifices to their idols, you also will find yourself making sacrifices to your idols too. If you make your career or your status or your reputation or your appearance or your spouse or your kids, if you make that your God, so to speak, someone's going to pay the price. Now, I want to close this way. I, I want to walk us through some, some hope because, eh. listen, to those of us that feel spiritually stuck right now, and, and isn't that we're always spiritually stuck at times in our lives, right? You know, spiritual growth, it's, it's not like an upward trajectory all the time. It's like the stock market. You know, it's like I'm up and I'm down and I'm up and I'm down. If you feel spiritually stuck, and let me say this to you, when, when you are courageously real enough to expose the below-the-line realities of your heart, your, your, your twisted desires, your false worship, you'll come to see that those things have been affecting your life in ways that you weren't even aware of. And until you address what's unseen, the, the parts of your heart that actually motivate you, that actually drive you, until you address those parts, you'll never change the behaviors in a way that is permanent in a way that's life-giving, you know? And so here's what you have to do. To make real progress in transformation, in other words, to really make progress toward finding wholehearted life in Jesus, you must identify the idols of your heart. The places that you would give worship other than God, that you would seek true life other than God, and then allow Jesus Christ to displace those things. If that sounds a little scary, it's because it is. It takes faith to believe that Jesus is more. And so what does this look like? I, I think it starts with a question. The, the question is this, where do I really believe I will find fullness of life. Is it in being comfortable, successful? Is it being a good dad, a good mom, having a great marriage? Is it in my health, you know, staying healthy or staying attractive? Is it in finding a spouse or starting a family? Is it having happy and successful kids? Is it physical pleasure? Is it the legacy I'm trying to leave? Where do I believe I will find fullness of life? The answer to that question will always lead you straight to the idols of your heart. 
And once you begin to recognize those things, then there becomes hope, right? Because then you, you can confess these to God and then turn your worship to the one true God. And so I want to lead us in this process this morning. And in a minute, we're going to put some things on the screen that we're going to be able to confess together, not specifics, but things that may reflect your own heart. I know they reflect mine. And, and I want you, as a part of this, to go ahead and get ready your communion elements. And whether you're at home, get those ready. If you're here in the room, get those ready. If you, if you failed to grab one on the way in, don't be shy to get up and go grab it and come back. And then with the communion elements in your hand, I want to walk you through a confession. And there's a part that I will say as the leader, and then there's a part that you will say as the congregation, and we'll kind of go back and forth together, leader, congregation. And I want you to really pay attention to these words and I don't want you just to pretend. If your heart is not here this morning, when you're not ready to come to God in need and say, I need help with this area of my life, then you don't need to say these words. But I want to encourage you. The Spirit of God has spoken to you through his word this morning. Make these words your words as we confess together and then look to Jesus Christ, our satisfaction and our salvation. Father, we stand before you this morning as a people whose hearts are prone to worship things instead of worshiping you. In our hunger and our thirst for fullness of life, we have turned away from you to seek life in what we can see and touch and feel. Forgive us, Father, for forsaking you, our one true source of life. The idols of our hearts have betrayed us. They have left our hunger unfilled and our thirst unsatisfied. They have fueled our desperation and taken us down empty and restless paths. The seeds of idolatry have sown, we have sown, have yielded a harvest of self-destruction, shattered dreams, relational brokenness. Forgive us, Lord, our deepest need is the healing of our hearts. Our truest desire is to be restored into communion with you. Although we turned from you, you did not turn from us. You met us on our path of destruction to redeem us onto the path of life. We now hold in our hands tangible reminders of the lengths you went to seek us out and bring us back. The body and blood of your son are our salvation and our satisfaction. Jesus, we bring to you our hunger and our thirst. We look to you alone to satisfy our souls. Help us cast aside all other objects of worship so we can taste and see that you are good. When there are good things in our lives, help us enjoy them in ways that overflow into praise of you, the giver of such gifts. When we lack things we desire, help us present our longings to you with open hands and trusting hearts. We anchor our faith to the truth that you are enough for us. We believe, help our unbelief. In our deepest hunger, the body of Christ was broken to become our bread of life. Let us eat and be filled. And in our deepest thirst, 
the blood of Christ was shed to become a living stream of eternal life. Let us drink and be satisfied.